Hello everyone, coming up on the Van Maren Show, we're going to be talking to best-selling author Rod Dreher about his book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Stay with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to Rod Dreher about his new book, Live Not By Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents. Now, I know a lot of you will recognize the name Rod Dreher because he's a wildly popular blogger over at the American Conservative, where he, he posts like three or four times a day updates from the culture wars, explaining what's going on. He's written and edited for the New York Post, the Dallas Morning News, National Review, the South Florida Sun-Sentinel, the Washington Times, and the Baton Rouge Advocate. His commentary has also been published in the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, Commentary, The Weekly Standard, and he has appeared on NPR, ABC News, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and the BBC. He currently lives in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, with his wife Julie and their three children, and he has written four books, all of which I've read, and I've reviewed all of these except for How Dante Can Save Your Life. But he wrote a a magnificent book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, which was truly a beautiful book. I think I plowed through it in a single day. Uh, Crunchy Cons, which is a fascinating book on, on what traditionalist conservatism looks like. And then his very famous and very controversial, uh, The Benedict Option, which basically takes a look at how Christians should confront the collapsing culture, how they can respond, how they can maintain uh, the integrity of their families. And it was very, very controversial because everybody seemed to have a different opinion on what The Benedict Option actually was. I wrote a couple of lengthy reviews of it uh, myself. It's a very, very interesting book, and and, and essentially the, the thesis of the book was that uh, Christians needed to take the time to cultivate uh, Christianity and their families, to build church communities, to tell uh, our own stories more effectively. It's worth a read just so that you can understand one of the biggest debates going on inside Christian circles at the moment. And now his new book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents, is sort of a follow-up to the Benedict Option. I I finished reading it in in two days. It was a very interesting read, and I'm really happy that Rod agreed to come on the show and discuss his book. So without further introduction from me, here's my conversation with Rod Dreher. Well, just to start off, in what way is is your new book, Live Not By Lies, a, a follow-up to the Benedict Option, which created so much controversy when it was published a couple of years ago? Sure. Well, yeah, it, it is. You can't think of Live Not By Lies as a, a sequel of sorts. Um, in Live Not By Lies, as in the Benedict Option, I saw a potentially mortal threat to Orthodox Christianity smaller Orthodox Christianity, I should say, mm-hmm. um, that is tra- traditional conservatives, uh, traditional Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, I see a mortal threat to it in different currents of modern life, uh, not simply secularization, but just different ways that we're living that makes it harder to hold on to the faith. But in Live Not By Lies, I really narrow that down and, and have a much more urgent uh, view or urgent uh, thrust of my argument, which says that the, that there is persecution coming, and I say specifically how it's coming, and say that Christians have to right now uh, prepare to deal with it. Not simply as you might guess by reading uh, the Benedict Option. Not not just let's sit back and kind of wait and see how things play out and and slowly build these institutions. I think things have become much more urgent in the three years since I've written The Benedict Option. I would agree with that. And and one of the things that I was very interested in when I was, was reading Live Not By Lies is first that I think The Benedict Option only gets one mention in the entire book. And second of all, how totally apolitical a book this is, especially during a year when uh, political books are flying off the shelf and everybody seems to be writing two or three of them. When you lay out how things got worse in the intervening three years between your books, how would you make the case to somebody that things have gotten particularly worse for Christians, considering the fact that a lot of people are quite happy uh, with what Trump has done for, say, the pro-life movement and, and religious liberty and things like that? Yeah, and I myself, even though I didn't vote for Trump, I, I abstained in the 2016 election, 
I'm happy, too, with the things he's done for religious liberty and the pro-life movement. I'm thrilled with his uh, judicial picks. Nevertheless, uh, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that uh, wokeness, as I call it, this militant identity politics ideology, has marched through the institutions and, and gained the high ground. And almost all of our cultural institutions, it has gotten even more powerful in corporate America, which is, I think, the big driver of most of this. And uh, Trump has done nothing to turn that back. Now, to be fair to him, there's not a lot any president, no matter uh, if they were a philosopher king, there's not a lot any president could have done to stop these cultural uh, cultural currents. But uh, I, I would just tell Christians, like, you know, stop paying attention just to politics and thinking that everything in life is political and everything depends on who's up and who's down uh, in Washington. And instead, pay attention to what's happening at your church, what's happening in your local school system, what's happening in your workplace. I think if you do that, a lot of us will find that uh, it, it's becoming distinctly more hostile to any kind of social conservatism or religious conservatism. So one of the things that I found particularly interesting about your analysis of how big corporations are wrapping themselves in the rainbow flag is you didn't talk a lot about politics because that wasn't the point of the book, but there are political implications, uh, most notably for the Republican Party, when you see the, the fusion of big business and social conservatism, that partnership no longer works because these two traditional factions of the GOP base are essentially now mortal enemies. And I know you spoke at the National Conservatism Conference in Rome. Uh, And as you know, there was one in Washington, D.C. as well, where the discussion underway was essentially, is is there any possibility of of conservatism sort of shedding the woke corporate faction of their voting base and then working to get blue collar voters? In other words, is there is there a realignment that's possible that could delay this thing? I think a realignment is not only possible, but inevitable that we won't see that until after Trump has exited the scene, because He's such a, a chaos candidate or a chaos, chaotic figure and that he keeps sensible populist people like Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri from emerging and putting together a coherent populist program. The problem is that I just don't see social conservatism having a lot of interest to uh, millennials, and Generation Z folks. I mean, right. abortion, the the needle hasn't moved a whole lot on abortion overall since 1973. Pro-life is more legitimate in the mainstream now, but uh, the numbers still, still look pretty much where they were in 73 among the population. On same-sex marriage and LGBT, I mean, clearly social conservatives have lost tremendously there. We, we've lost the elites and we've lost most of the younger generation, and this is going to have tremendous uh, impact in terms of religious liberty going forward. Uh, on race, this has been the most interesting thing of the year, uh, to see how the the major thrust of liberalism, of social liberalism, has flipped from LGBT rights to race and, and racial equality or racial equity, as they say now, since the George Floyd thing. And i got to tell you, Johnson, I'm not an evangelical, but I have... Uh, you know, watch evangelicalism for the outside at friends on the inside. It has been astonishing to me to see how uh, critical race theory and uh, racial wokeness yeah. has cut right down the middle of conservative white evangelicalism. So I, all of, with all of these factors in play, I think it's going to be really, really difficult for any kind of coherent and strong uh, new coalition to form on the right post-Trump. I, I think we'll see something there. But my, uh, my feeling is that social conservatives and religious conservatives are going to be uh, just play a bit part in what's coming in the future simply because the country is no longer, no longer has a majority of social or religious conservatives. When you were writing the Benedict Option, I know you took a look at uh, the, the cultural pace, the way in which technology was enabling, for example, the, the greater corruption of, of the Christian communities through porn on smartphones and stuff like that. And then in the first half of Live Not By Lies, you have this far more sinister analysis of, of something Shoshana Zuboff calls um, surveillance capitalism. And you write a lot about how basically the infrastructure necessary for soft totalitarianism already exists. 
And then you make the case that America is currently pre-totalitarian. Now, I thought the way you put it together with uh, the, 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 taking a look at Hannah Arendt and then taking a look at uh, surveillance capitalism and then what's being implemented in China was really fascinating food for thought. But how would you make the case to a skeptical Christian who will agree with you that, you know, Christianity has has largely collapsed, but let's say takes a more... Um, uh, a view closer to Ross Douthat's in the decadent society than than in, than in your analysis. How would you make the case to them that America is, in fact, a pre-totalitarian state? Well, first of all, I would do, as I do in the book, and go take a look at Hannah Arendt's well-regarded 1951 book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. In that book, she went back after the Second World War to find out exactly what conditions led Germans to accept Nazism and led Russians to accept Bolshevism. And she found that there were uh, a number of things they had in common. I talk about this in the book, but uh, among the main ones is mass loneliness and alienation. Mm. People had lost trust in their institutions, lost trust in each other, didn't feel that they had any direction in life, and they were sitting ducks for people who came in with sweeping new ideologies that could replace the thing that they thought they were missing, right? Well, we have that in spades. There's a new essay just up today by David Brooks in the Atlantic magazine, Atlantic.com, talking about this, how this year, this COVID year, has really revealed for all to see what a low-trust society and broken society the United States has become. Well, this is you know, number one for Hannah Arendt about the things that led to totalitarianism. And I would say we've got it right here. Um, other, other things she talked about was people being manic for ideology over, over truth. And uh, we, we've seen that both on the left and the right as being a pre-totalitarian thing that we see here in this society. We've seen people... Uh, even being willing to falsify history for the sake of coming up with narratives that suited their ideological preferences. So I, I would talk about these things and others uh, in trying to convince Christians that things are broken here in a way that we've never seen, and we don't have any clear way out of this. Now, I also point out, as you, as you mentioned, that technology has uh, has gotten so far along in terms of being able to surveil us and to know what each of us are doing individually in ways that are almost completely invisible to most Americans. I mean, I'm pretty well informed, Jonathan, and I mm-hmm. did not realize until I read Shoshana Zuloff's book how deep this surveillance capitalism thing went. What, what that means, for briefly, I'll, I'll define it for the reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zuboff says that in 2003, Google pioneered uh, a new way of making money by gathering up tons and tons and tons of extraneous data from the way people use the Internet. And, of course, some smartphones came on that added to it. And what they did was uh, figured out, uh, figuring out from all this data, applying algorithms to it, and figuring out what people want, what they want to see, and what they might want to buy. All of this was to try to figure out how to better serve them as customers. The problem with this is that it also gives these companies a, a really good idea of how to manipulate us. Uh, in China, in communist China, they do the same thing, except the state uses this data to, uh, to con- force conformity onto people by, by giving them access, greater access to middle-class comforts if they conform and cutting off their access if they fail to conform. We have the same thing going on here right now in America, but the government is not seizing our data. We're handing it over freely to big corporations. It wouldn't take much to have a system like China does, the so-called social credit system, to have that implemented here in the United States and in North America. The data are already there. Um, the, the thing that I'm worried about, reading David Brooks's essay really just confirmed me in this, in a low-trust society where people don't know who, who they can believe in, they're going to want some kind of objective standard of trust. This is why the social credit system in communist China has been actually fairly popular with people. Communism itself, 40, 50 years of communism, destroyed social trust there. So people have to turn to this electronic system, this impersonal system, 
to know who is trustworthy. I think that the younger generations here, the millennials and Gen Z, who, are, who have dramatically lower levels of social trust already and who are, have been so alienated, thanks in part to technology and, and the smartphones and social media, they're going to be sitting ducks for this sort of thing coming down down the pike. Well, it's really interesting because I we had Mary Aberstadt on the podcast when her uh, most recent book, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics, when that was published. And she makes the like really compelling case in that book that because of the way the sexual revolution has wreaked havoc on the family, I, she, I, I believe she says that identity politics is the screaming bastard child of the birth control pill, which there's a, there's a lot packed into a few words there. Um, but she says right now we're experiencing the greatest level of family disruption outside of war or famine in recorded human history. And we're doing so in a traditionally wealthy society. But her thesis essentially is, is these primal screams you hear uh, on the streets at these rallies, like the level of passion that people are working up comes from a desire to know who they are. But because they don't have a family, they don't know who they are, which 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 goes directly to your your uh, your your paragraphs on atomization in, in Live Not By Lies. To what extent do you think the breakdown of the family is driving this atomization that could lead to the totalitarianism you refer to? I think Mary is spot on with that. I think her book is wonderful, Primal Screams. It's a pretty terrifying book, but she's dead on target. Uh, in Live Not By Lies, I devote an entire chapter to the role of the family as in building up resistance to totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. And I profile in there the Benda family of Prague. Uh, Va- the late Václav Benda was the only Christian who was in Václav Havel's circle of dissidents in Czechoslovakia. Uh, under communism, and uh, he and his wife, Camilla, had five or six kids. I can't remember exactly how many, but they had a, a large family, and they believed that their family was the primary uh, formator, educator of their kids, and not only how to be Christians, but how to be good citizens and stand up against totalitarianism. Uh, without that family, I don't know what those kids would have done. I mean, I, I spent some time with them in their apartment talking to them about what their mom and dad taught them and how they taught them. And it, it was just incredible what a, what a, a school of, of real life and of real faith that family was. But nobody has families like that anymore. Very few people do in Czechoslovakia or here in the U.S., and uh, I, I think that we are going to reap the whirlwind from that. Uh, people, the people who start to see themselves and their identities not only as not related to a family, you're not part of a family, you're a free individual who picks and chooses what to believe and uh, with whom to associate. You know, you can become much, much more open to manipulation by bad ideological actors. And look, we saw this in um, Russia and Germany after the First World War. The, the wars were absolutely devastating for both of those countries. Uh, it took down the imperial system in Russia, but also killed a lot of people mm-hmm. and discredited a lot of institutions. Um, and when people don't, when things have been taken from them, when they don't don't have the sort of usual markers to orient themselves. As they go through the world, the markers of family, of church, of inst- social institutions, and so forth, uh, that is an incredibly angst-ridden thing to have to deal with. And they become desperate for something to give them direction. I mean, look, I, I talk in the book, Jonathan, about how the whole social justice warrior ethos, this social justice ethos, is really just an ersatz religion. It's a politicized form of uh, filling the God-shaped hole in their hearts. Mm-hmm. They are not laissez-faire, uh, you know, let's just go through life being potheads and take it as it comes. They're actually extremely morally motivated young people. And we've got to take it seriously, as not just as a political ideology, but as a substitute religion.
Now, what was it like? You said that things have gotten a lot worse since the Benedict Option and, and Live Not By Lies in those three intervening years. But what was it like to be working on, on Live Not By Lies, to be talking about social atomization, to be talking about sort of the balkanization of the United States, and then to watch the year that 2020 has been unfolding around you as you wrote this book? What was that like? Well, I'll tell you, I finished the book um, in mid-March, just as COVID was kicking Okay. And, yeah, and, and as... But when I sent the final manuscript to my publisher in New York, I remember thinking, okay, how am I going to promote this to American readers? Because you know, people thought I was alarmist with the Benedict Option. Well, this is really alarmist. And they're going to accuse me of going off the deep end now. Well, then COVID really kicked in, and suddenly people realized how quickly everything could fall apart. Mm. And then came George Floyd and the riots. And, you know, then the, the response by so many in institutions and schools and colleges, companies to suddenly get super, super woke and, and rigid on race. And I, by the time the, you know, we got to September, when the book was about to come out, I told my publisher, I don't think I have to really make a case to people that we are in a deep crisis in this country and things are really, really unstable. I have to tell you, though, you, you talked about the Benedict Option in this book. In fact, the, the genesis for Live Not My Lies came as I was working on the Benedict Option, just before the Benedict Option, when I got a call one day from a doctor in Minnesota. He works a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. He got my number from a mutual friend. He called and told me that his mother, uh, in her 90s, lived with him and his wife, she had been born in Czechoslovakia and had spent four years in prison for her Christian faith back in the 50s under communism. And she was telling him, son, the things happening in this country now remind me of what happened when communism came to my homeland. And uh, the, the particular thing that triggered her, Jonathan, was the, the whole mess that happened in Indiana over the Religious Freedom Restoration Act controversy back in 2015, uh, I don't know if your listeners will remember that, yeah. but the state of Indiana, Republican legislature, Republican Governor Mike Pence, uh, passed a state version of the federal RIFRA uh, that would have simply given uh, religious believers a religious freedom defense if they were ever sued for discrimination in court. It wouldn't guarantee that they would win. It would just give them some legal grounds, affirmative grounds, on which to defend themselves. The legislature passed it, the governor signed it, and suddenly... There was an explosion. Big business took sides in the culture war for the first time in a very big way. They threatened the state of Indiana with economic boycotts if they didn't repeal this and on and on. What triggered this, uh, this old Czech lady was watching on TV what happened when a TV reporter from a big station went to this little town to an evangelical-owned pizza parlor, Memories Pizza. Mm interviewed the owner and said, would you serve gay customers? Yes, of course, I'll serve gay customers. But would you cater a gay wedding? No, they said, we, we can't do that. That would be against our beliefs. Boom, this went, a flash mob uh, emerged off of social media. They began getting death threats at the pizza place, threats to burn the place down. They had to shut it down. This was the kind of thing that the old Czech woman said, that's exactly the kind of thing that the communists did Back in Czechoslovakia, they would whip up uh, ideologically insane mobs, come after people that they would target as enemies of the people. So uh, this was on my mind as I was writing the Benedict Option, but I didn't imagine that things would, would, get, would move that way so quickly as they have done. One of the, the really interesting things about reading through the second half of your book and looking at how uh, dissidents under communism um, responded was I was uh, I was in Hungary a few years ago and I got a tour of the House of Terror and, and, and all these different sites in Budapest from a young woman in her early 30s. And she said she was the first member of her family to have gone to university because prior to that, uh, under communism, if you were baptized, you couldn't attend university. And. I asked her what kind of persecution Christians in Hungary suffered, and, and she said something very interesting. She said it wasn't sort of overt send-you-to-jail persecution, but she said that you had a choice. You can be Christian or you can be successful. 
And I found that it was a very interesting framing mechanism because she said if you were Christian and you attended church and you were baptized and all these things, you know, you couldn't go to university, so you were automatically disqualified from all the elite professions. You couldn't get a government job. Uh, you, there's most jobs you couldn't actually get. And and that is very true for, for Canada and for certain European countries now where increasingly, uh, because of these different barriers to entry, we're being presented with the option, well, um, you can be Christian or you can be successful, one or the other. To what degree do you think that is the sort of soft totalitarianism that we're going to be seeing in the United States in the coming years? That's most of it. Right there, Jonathan. Your Hungarian friend has nailed it. And that's why I call it soft totalitarianism. Hard totalitarianism is George Orwell, 1984, secret police knocking your, on your door at night and that sort of thing. Uh, we may get to that, I don't know, but I don't think we'll even have to in order for the, the system to ha- get conformity. Rather, it's going to be uh, the sort of thing where, as the Hungarian said, you can either be true to your faith or you can be successful, but you can't do both. Mm. Already now in the U.S., uh, medical licensing and uh, the legal profession are putting up barriers there to where Orthodox Christians, I mean, liberal Christians are fine because they don't present a threat to the system, but Christians who believe in, Christians have traditionally believed in, in terms of uh, abortion and in terms of sexuality, sexual orientation and gender identity, we're going to either have to burn the pinch of incense or go find something else to do with your lives. And uh, this is something that is really revolutionary because I think that... uh, so many North Americans are so accustomed to comfort and to being able to get exactly what we want without having to worry about it, because we've been blessed by liberty. Well, that's over for Christians, for serious Christians. And Christians are going to have to ask themselves very deeply if they are willing to embrace the scorn of their peers and uh, a loss of cultural status, a loss of social status, and a loss of entire um, professions open to us for the sake of being faithful. I, I think that a, a lot of people, a lot of Christians think, well, of course I will, I'll stand up they can, uh, to, to these uh, persecutors, no problem. But then when it comes down to actually doing something, like going to, you know, losing your job and not, your kid not being able to go to uh, a good university because they've tracked your social media posting and you, you seem politically unreliable, you might go, you go to a bigot church, your kid goes to a bigot church, we don't want bigots on this campus, therefore you won't be accepted. Are people really prepared for that sort of uh, white martyrdom? And it's interesting when you, when, you, when you say light martyrdom, because as you know, European conservatism and American conservatism are incredibly different. They don't actually share a whole lot in common. And one of the things that a lot of people speculate about, and I, and I, I am going to be asking you a, a dangerous and unpleasant question that you can dodge if you want to, but in the discussion of persecution and soft versus hard totalitarianism, the the one thing that people consistently bring up is we are talking about the most well-armed Christian minority in all of human history. Does that make a difference? Does all of these things in the American Constitution, all these guaranteed freedoms, does any of that provide a buffer? Does that change the calculation in terms of hard versus soft totalitarianism? What are your thoughts on all of that, especially with the sort of nonstop discussion about civil war that's been going on now since March? Yeah, you're right. That is a really unpleasant, difficult topic, but it's something we have to think about. I mean, look, I live in the American South, right? I, I have weapons. All my family have weapons. Most people I know have weapons and know how to use them, not because we're gun nuts who are arming ourselves against the uh, totalitarian government, but because we're hunters. And you know, this is a hunting culture, and people, you, you grow up with guns, and they're not something really scary. But I have to say, though, I'm really skeptical when I hear some of the of my fellow conservatives say, well, you know, we live in red America. We've got guns. They can't tell us what to do. Right. Really? Are you really going to take your guns out and shoot somebody um, for the sake of not being told that uh, you can't, your kid can't go to Yale? I just, it just seems like it's a, it's a form of, of role-playing in people's minds. And, but here's the more important uh, point. In China, a social credit system, most of the commerce done in China is done electronically. They're moving very quickly to a cashless society. 
So this allows the government to track every one of your purchases instantly. It goes into the system. Well, it also gives the government the power to cut you out of the economy instantly with the flick of a switch. If we had to get this sort of thing here, it really will be the case that the whole uh, thing that we've all been concerned about, the end days where you can't buy or sell if you don't have the mark of the beast, this is something that could realistically happen that people would not be able to participate even in something as simple as going to the supermarket and buying goods if you have been cut out of the system because you're politically unreliable. This in a cashless society. So this is the kind of thing where you wonder if, if, the t- if we get that sort of technological capability in the hands of the government and private industry, you know, what good will guns do you then when, when you, your money is no good? Right. Right. Now, one of the things that's been going on uh, over the last couple of years is a, is a pretty a, a pretty interesting debate between Christians of different sorts on what the future of Christianity in the in the U.S. looks like. And I, I know you've discussed this with him, but I, I've wanted to ask you about this is is in all the sort of the end of days books that have been coming out recently. Um, you've got Ross Duthit's book, The Decadent Society, in which he kind of swims against the stream and says, maybe things aren't all that bad. Uh, it took Rome 300 years to fall, and maybe we're sort of we're sort of at this 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 point where uh, it, things could sort of stumble along or grind along like this for a very long time. Now, to be fair to him, his book came out before COVID and the BLM riots and and, and, and all of that. But I know you've discussed this with him. What would you say to somebody who says, look, maybe this sort of stagnation, maybe this is just going to last for a long time where we role play on Twitter and we scream at each other. Um, but because we have all these sort of outlets that don't involve actual street fighting, in reality, it's more of a video game simulation than Weimar Germany. Hmm, well, I hope as somebody who lives in this society and has children, I will be releasing into the wild. Into this society. <laughs> I, I hope that's true. Uh, but uh, I think COVID has shown to us how quickly everything can can fall apart. This has been pretty mild as plagues go, right? But we're still seeing businesses that can't open up. We're seeing people lose their jobs and people without jobs and without any means to support themselves and without a strong social safety net as exists in the U.S., they can become pretty angry and pretty desperate. So, uh, and it's also the case, too, that we live in uh, a society, a, a technologically advanced society, where ideas pass extremely quickly among people. Uh, my mom is 77 years old, lives in the same small town where I was born and raised. Uh, she's lived to be an age where there are same-sex couples going to middle school dances in this little tiny town in deep Trumplandia. Right? My, my mom just doesn't know how to wrap her mind around right. the rate of social change. And, and I don't blame her. It's, it's pretty shocking. But this is what's happened. And I, I think that we cannot be sanguine about, oh, we'll, we'll, things will work themselves out eventually. Because, you know, I, I, what uh, Solzhenitsyn said in the Gulag Archipelago that, you know, just imagine Chekhov and these other intellectuals sitting around at the end of the 19th century in Russia. If you'd come there and told them that within 30 years, uh, they would be uh, the state would be murdering millions and, imp- and instituting medieval tortures on people, they wouldn't have been able to believe it. But that's how quickly things can happen, especially in a technologically advanced country that doesn't have a lot of strong institutions left, where, where people have lost faith in institutions and ways of life. One of the things that that has really struck me over the last just couple of years and that I think is sort of a rebuttal to Ross Duthit's thesis is the extent to which we're uh, uh, incapable of talking to one another not because we won't, but because we don't mean the same things by the words that we use. And so words like fascism and racism and like none of these things refer to what they used to refer to. And therefore, it's almost impossible for us to have a conversation with somebody who defines basic words like love and hatred differently than we would. Um, and so to what extent is is the fact that we no longer share a vocabulary preventing us from, from trying to work out a common ground scenario that allows us to live together peacefully? 
Well, this is the uh, point that the philosopher Alistair McIntyre made in his great 1980s book, After Virtue, you know, that we are moving into a fragmented society in which things don't cohere. We lack the same vocabulary, and if you lack the same vocab- conceptual vocabulary and literal vocabulary, uh, you can't talk. It's everything becomes, all, all, all reason becomes actually emoting. I remember, and I think I say this in Live Not By Lies, a signal moment in this cultural transformation came in 2015 on the campus of Yale University. You can see this online. It's on YouTube. It was widely captured. When there was a big throwdown over Halloween costumes, Mm. this uh, professor, a housemaster named Erica Christakis, sent out a note to the students in their college saying, you know, why is the university so worried about people, what adults, what Halloween costumes you adults wear? Shouldn't they be concerned about more important things? Well, the students erupted in revolt. They said, how can you say this? This is so insensitive. You've, you've insulted our identities, blah, blah, blah. It ended up on campus with this mob of students, uh, social justice uh, students, attacking uh, verbally uh, Professor Nicholas Christakis, the husband of Erica Christakis. And you can see on this video where Nick Christakis, who's an older you know, baby boomer liberal, is trying to engage them using reason. Mm. You want to listen to what they're saying, uh, critique it, and you know, just do the normal Socratic reason, dialogue, whatever. They are not having it. They shriek at him, they curse him, they cry, and uh, this is the perfect illustration of what Alistair McIntyre said back in the 1980s, that we were heading into that, where you can't reason. All you could have is emotion. Well, eventually, some. Something has got to give in a society like this. And I think that the fact that the people who hold to a a very particular left-wing form of rationality, if you can even call it that, the fact that they are are surrendering every single day to these emotional left-wing mobs. I'm talking about people like university presidents, like the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, and so on and so forth. This new successor ideology is taking over, and uh, we who are you know, further, closer to the ground and outside these circles, we don't even know what's happening. I wrote today on my blog about a situation in Loudoun County, Virginia, public schools. Loudoun County is suburban Washington, D.C., and it's uh, the richest county in Virginia, which is one of the richest states. In Loudoun County, there's a, a move now to have the school board adopt a policy that would uh, institute critical race theory and a lot of these extremely left-wing policies in the schools. If you go look online at the, the way these policies are stated, it's written in this sort of bureaucratic jargon that ordinary people really can't understand. And the word they keep using is equity, equity. Well, most people see equity, they think, well, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that the same thing as equality? Absolutely not. That's not how the left uses it. But if they get this thing instituted, it's going to turn these schools into indoctrination factories. And, by the way, as part of this policy, they, this, if it gets adopted, the schools reserve the right to fire any staff member who criticizes any aspect of it, even on his or her own time. And they mandate that teachers and staff rat each other out to the authorities if they hear any criticism. This is happening. This yeah. is happening right now with people not knowing what's going on. You know, do you think this is going to get much coverage? But it's happening slowly, slowly, slowly in school districts and locales around the country while everybody else is distracted by the drama at Walter Reed Hospital or whatever Trump said on social media today. Yeah, in, in the early part of your book, you mentioned um, Anne Applebaum's research on the gulags. And what you just said brought to mind the fact that that trans activist in London, England, a couple of years ago had to delete a tweet in which she defended gulags as re-education camps. Like you, you quite literally can't make this stuff up. But your book was the second book I've read in the last couple of months that, that took a look at at what had happened behind the Iron Curtain and then afterwards. And the other one was Twilight of Democracy by, by Anne Applebaum. I don't remember if she mentions you in the book, but she definitely mentions quite a few of your friends, including Roger Scruton, uh, John O'Sullivan, 
people like that. And, and I bought the book actually to read just because I had been so challenged by her book, Red Famine and the Gulag. She's a she's a magnificent historian. And so I, I thought, oh, I'll buy this book on on populism and then and challenge myself with it. And one of the things I wanted to get your take on is that it the thing that kind of made me despair at the end of the book was I thought somebody who's as intelligent, as incisive and as well read in research as Anne Applebaum has missed everything entirely because she essentially looked at Trump voters, Johnson voters, Bolsonaro voters, you know, those who were voting for the Vox Party in Spain or uh, Madi on Matichel in France or what have you, that, that these people are all essentially willing to trash norms and missing the, the fact that somebody who's voting for, say, Trump over Biden is voting for somebody who affirms that gender, you know, there, there, are, there are just boys and girls. Babies in the womb are babies, you know. And, and, but she didn't seem to be able to wrap her head around the idea that for many people, voting for these populist figures was actually their attempt to preserve norms that stretch back thousands of years farther than whatever voting procedures um, Applebaum was referring to. I don't I don't know if you've read the book, but what was your take on 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 her analysis of of populism, especially considering the fact that she just didn't seem to understand that people are people are voting in self-defense, but also norms like there, you know, boys and girls exist and there isn't 72 genders are 2000 years old. Um, norms like even traditional marriage, no nation on earth legalized this prior to the year 2000. It was the first was the Netherlands in 2001. But she doesn't seem to understand that social conservatives are also defending norms, but they're much deeper. They're much they're much more civilizational. And it disappointed me that she couldn't at least figure out why people were doing what they were doing, if that makes sense. Well, you you said it better than I, I can. I, I read the book, too, and my take was exactly yours. But And I kept wondering, why is it that this, here's a historian I respect, I drew on her work for my own book, Live Not By Lies, but we can look at the same set of data and come up with very different conclusions. Mm-hmm. The only, or the main thing that I figure, or that I, I thought about this, and you tell me what you think about it, is that Ann Applebaum and I were both, you know, American, uh, liberal Democrats, small L, small D, liberal Democrats, we're both products of this society, but we have radically different ideas of what constitutes the common good. Mm. And for her, the idea of open borders is not even questionable. It's a primary good. For her, the idea of progress towards you know, uh, getting away from a world in which people are shackled by religion and by you know, these, these sort of ties that conservatives think of as good, that these are things that help us know who we are and keep things from going off the rails— I think she's a true liberal in that way, a right-wing liberal, but a liberal, and that she can't imagine that why people would defend these things. And like I, I read her book too, as I said, and I can't defend some of the things that populist politicians have done in, in Eastern Europe. I can't defend everything Trump has done. Heaven knows, right? But at the same time, I, it was just it drove me nuts that she can't see that uh, in Hungary, for example. The reason so many people support Viktor Orban is not because he's an anti-Semitic demagogue, for heaven's sake. They support Viktor Orban because people like George Soros and wealthy Western capitalists who bought up all these Hungarian industries at fire sale prices after the fall of the wall, they came in and were trying to radically change Hungary and make the people into a carbon copy of secular, liberal, Western European society. Uh, I, I myself thought the worst of Orban until I went to Hungary for the first time and was talking to an ordinary uh, Catholic there about it. And this person said, she told me that, said, look, you know, I, I, can't, I vote for Orban because he at least thinks that we Hungarians ought to be the ones to have the main say over the future of our country. And we don't want these uh, ideas coming in, being bought and paid for by George Soros, and NGOs and people in the West were trying to make us somebody we're not. We just got past one being dominated by one ideological system, a foreign system that was dumped on us. We don't want to trade that for another one. This is something that's completely blind or completely, uh, you can't even conceive of it mm. if you're Ann Applebaum and members of that class. 
But in her book, because you do dealt a lot with cancel culture and how cancel culture will be weaponized against Christians, essentially, uh, in the first half of Live Not By Lies. And in, in her book, I counted, there were four paragraphs where she gives a cursory nod towards cancel culture just so that she can't be accused of only focusing on on sort of the right-wing sins in, in her mind. But for her, she accuses folks like Roger Scruton, like uh, John O'Sullivan, who was on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she accuses them of essentially being the people who made a deal with Vichy France. Um, but the left can't go far too far left, right? They, they never managed to become Bolshevik. I think Douglas Murray put this, right? He said, there's no, no such thing as too far left for a lefty, but anything slightly to the right of uh, tax cuts and your Hitler. Um, it, it's sort of immediate, but, but it makes me nervous just because it, I guess this goes to your theory, but there was always this idea that li- like liberals who love freedom will still be our allies when we need them. And, and there were some beautiful examples in the second half of your book of the Christians working with the secularists, but it's turning out that a lot of those people's liberal instincts are not nearly as, as keen as we thought they were because when when Anne Applebaum makes a nod in her book towards the left-wing cancel culture, you can almost finish the sentence in your head because she says, yes, that's true, they do this too, but, and what she's actually saying, but I agree with what they're trying to do. And so a little bit of excess is forgivable, as opposed to... They, they mean well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, these, I guess they are, they are trying to appease the mob, thinking that they are going to be spared when the mob comes for them, but... They're going to be swallowed up too, because you cannot possibly uh, appease mobs like this, these fanatical mobs. And it's so distressing to see people like Anne Applebaum, who ought to know better than anybody, because she had studied and written about the communist system uh, in such depth. For her not to see the same sort of you know, basic foundations of of that tyranny emerging. Here in the West, but I, I have to say, let me say some good words about people who may be on the left, or at least not Christians, who can be our allies. I'm thinking of people like Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. people like Brett Weinstein, and Heather Hying, his wife, leftists, secular leftists who were driven out of Evergreen State by the mob. Think about people like the the uh, popular podcaster Joe Rogan. If anything, he's a left libertarian. He endorsed Bernie Sanders for president, but yeah. when you listen to him, you realize. This is a guy who knows something is deeply, deeply wrong with the left. And he's somebody that I would trust to stand by me before I would trust uh, some people in the Church. Yeah. Who are desperate to, to appease and to, you know, stay all Quran so we can be salt and light to the world. And it's... You know, there's a lot of cowards within the church, I hate to say. Joe Rogan is one of these, these um, like, American everyman kind of guys that you just can't see falling for some of the garbage that comes out of progressive mouths. Like, it's just, he isn't, he isn't educated enough to fall for that kind of stuff. That's really well said. Because this is a thing, this wokeness is primarily, at least for now, a disease of the intellectuals. But... It's also the one reason why so many people don't take it seriously. You know, in Live Not By Lies, I talk about how uh, Czesław Miłosz, the Polish uh, defector and intellectual, he said that we have to be very careful because these things always start out among elites. He said that people of Eastern Europe woke up one day to discover very unpleasantly that their lives are being ruled by ideas that were previously only discussed in coffee shops and among academics. Right. Well, similarly, here in North America, you know, 20 years ago, who was talking about transgenderism except <laughs> people on the English faculty, right, yep. or at the Modern Language Association conferences? Yeah. Now it's totally mainstream, and in fact, it's being legislated. If Biden wins and the Democrats win the Senate, they're going to pass the Equality Act, which will give transgenderism the same the same uh, stance, uh, stance under civil rights law in the U.S. as race. It's game, set, match right there. Mm-hmm. Well, and the transgenderism thing is, is sort of the most worrisome because in, in terms of the soft totalitarianism thing you discuss, we can, in my mind, we can tolerate anything until they come for kids. Right. As long as we can pass our values on to our children, as long as we can, you know, teach them about the Christian principles, as long as we can take them to church, whatever that church happens to look like, um, as long as we can protect them from the indoctrination of the state, you can tolerate pretty much anything. But once they come for the kids, that's where you can't tolerate things anymore. 
And I was hoping that there would be a backlash at some point to the trans movement as the more and more detransitioners come out. But it's looking increasingly likely that we're going to somehow get blamed for it anyways. That they're going to say, well, the only reason that detransitioners exist is, you know, because Christians planted doubts in their mind in the first place. If we get rid of transphobia, we'll also get rid of detransitioners. They'll find it's kind of like Nero and Rome burning, right? They're going to find some way to make something they did our problem. Um, when you look, when you look at the next, say, twenty years, what's your actual synopsis? Because I noticed in your book you you lay out how this could happen, why you think it will happen, but you refrain, probably very wisely, especially because twenty twenty is the year where everybody's predictions fell fell apart. But how 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 what kind of a timeline do you think that we're actually on? Well, I I wisely refrain from making <laughs> predictions, but this is what I think is going to happen. I think the Democrats are going to win uh, in this fall. Trump is going to be sent down. And there's going to be a rush from the left to pay back those who supported Trump, but also to pass legislation that locks in things, uh, uh, social advances that they see it, socially progressive legislation, to try to keep anybody, any Trump people from coming back and undoing them. And I, I think we may see... A, a backlash from the right at the next election in two years, and eventually it's going to come to a, a point of blows. I mean, this is exactly what happened in the Spanish Civil War, right? From 1931 to 1935, there was such a ratcheting up between left and right in Spain's new democracy that by the time you get to 1935, just before the outbreak of the war, um, people hated each other so much, and they hated democracy because democracy was the way that the other side could come to power. Right. I think we're going to go through a situation like that, and eventually what's going to happen is there'll be the institution of a social credit system under some kind of, they'll come up with some reason for it to sort of guarantee social peace, social harmony. Or, tra- or tracking people from COVID. Exactly, exactly. It's going to be sold to us as something positive, but that's going to be the way that they they get us. And I, I would say that it could happen within 10 years. The technology is advancing rapidly. One of the readers of my blog who works in, is a Christian who works in tech, sent me um, uh, something from a tech journal talking about getting ready for the social credit system, trying to help tech companies prepare to make money from this coming into the U.S. And, uh, you know, and we've already been accustomed to being surveilled all the time. Uh, in the book, as you know, I talk about something I got from Shoshana Zuboff's book, in which uh, scientists are now working on facial recognition software embedded in smart TVs that can read the faces of people uh, at home as they watch a commercial or a TV show and figure out the the precise moment when their emotions shift and send that data back all so they can sell them things. Well, I mean, look, if, if the government came, Jonathan, and said, we want to put a monitor in your house that watches you and sends data back about what you're thinking uh, to a central database. We would say, get out of here, George Orwell. We're the, we don't want that. But if it's sold to us as consumer convenience, oh, we're, we're, we're a mark for it. I think this, within 10 years or so, is how they are going to, they being the, the elites in the establishment, are going to pacify a restive nation. Mm. Uh, using some form of technology and consumerism to get us all plugged in. And we'll stop using cash because we've already gotten used to using our cards during COVID to pay for most things. I don't know about you, but here in Louisiana, uh, I very rarely use cash. Because stores, they have to take cash, but they prefer to take cards. I prefer to use cards. Yep. But you see that we're not going to go back. It's so much easier for all of us to use cards but somebody's able to track every purchase we make. And here's one of the another things that really worried me reading your book, and it's something I've been thinking about for a little while. As you mentioned in the second half of your book, at several different points, that this history of, of how the Christian dissidents survived under communism and kept their families intact, that these stories are already being forgotten by the grandchildren of those dissidents in many cases, except for a couple of exceptional examples, like the Benda family that you mentioned. But one of the things that, that, that is I find really difficult and discouraging about that in, in today's culture that I think makes it in some ways more difficult than it was under communism is twofold. 
One is pornography, which you've written about in both the Benedict Option and Live Not By Lies. It's omnipresent and it's 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 almost totally destructive. And secondarily, it's it's the fact that one of the most essential things for us to do to keep our families intact is to be able to tell Christian stories and to tell them better, to do essentially what you did in the second half of that book, uh, to pass these things on, because Christians without heritage, without tradition, uh, without the written word, without stories, it, it, it all falls apart. But because the the, the key storytellers uh, in our culture are all progressive, we are actually having our own stories told back to us, but by by progressive people. So I don't know if you watched uh, that Hulu show, Mrs. America, from earlier earlier this year, just by way of example about. Yeah, it, and it's vile because she's she's long been been a hero of mine. I actually interviewed her before she she passed away. There's a beautiful book written by a liberal journalist who set out to smear her, uh, uh, Carol Felsenthal, um, who wrote a book, The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority. And in this in this series, they present Phil Schlafly as somebody who was willing to play footsie with the KKK. She was sort of like cold blooded, horrible, evil woman. Like she she was like Maleficent or something like that. It was just awful to watch but because they have the tv studios because they make the stories and because they're passing these stories on to a culture that doesn't read books that is now how millions and millions and millions of people are going to see phyllis schlafly and the fact that it's a lie doesn't matter and we almost don't have the cultural power to tell our own stories about our own heroes you know this housewife from alton illinois who held off who essentially held off the ERA through the power of her army of housewives. It's an incredible story. She faced down a couple of presidents. But that that incredible story is told by their side, and we end up with this deformed, racist, vicious, horrible woman who the show insinuates didn't even care about abortion, just did that, used the, used the issue just as a wedge issue because she wanted to have power. Um, how do we combat that? Because I, I thought that that part of your book was so powerful about passing on these stories, but how do we combat the fact that in American culture, our stories are being told by people who hate us? Right. Well, the first thing to know is there's no way, no easy way at all to defeat this. And because most people in this society are being propagandized in the way you describe that's going to uh, increase the hatred for Christians that is ultimately going to result in persecution. And I, I say that not to be despairing, but just simply to say that we've got to be clear about what's coming and prepare ourselves for it. That said, uh, in, in Live Not By Lies, I tell the story about how the Bendas and other dissidents under communism would get people together in their apartments or wherever they could for lectures and readings, uh, to, to tell the stories that were not being told in the communist schools and in the communist propaganda media. Uh, Roger Scruton, I interviewed Sir Roger Scruton in the last summer before his life. He received me at his farm, and we talked about this sort of thing. And he said this is what those people had to do so they could remember who they were. Because uh, the if we lose cultural memory, you know, if we don't remember the things about who our ancestors were and the, and our, the traditions that we're, we've been given, the, the scriptural stories, all of these things that make up a culture and make up an identity of a culture and its people, if those are taken from us, then we become putty in the hands of the controllers. And that's what they're counting on, right? That's what this so much of this historical revisionism and American history curricula now and uh, tearing down statues, things like that. It's all about controlling the cultural memory of a people. If we're sitting back passively as Christians and allowing uh, our enemies to define who we are in the minds of our own children, then uh, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We can't do that. But you can't just be passive about it and say, we're going to turn off the TV here, though you should do that. You've got to give them something positive to think about. Uh, the, uh, one of the real heroes of my book is Camilla Bendova, the wife of Václav Benda. Mm-hmm. She herself is a professor in Prague, and she told me that under communism, even when her husband was in uh, prison as a political prisoner, she would read for at least two hours a night to her kids. I said, well, what would you read to them? And she said, you know, the classics and myths, things like that, the sort of things they weren't getting at school. She said... We read a lot of Tolkien. I said, oh, that's interesting. Why Tolkien? She looked at me square in the eye, Jonathan, and said, because we knew that Mordor was real. Right. That their story, the, the, the dwarfs and the hobbits, their story was our story. And I found that so powerful because we had been talking in, in the Benda's apartment all evening about 
the things that uh, Camilla and her husband did to teach their children what was wrong with the world, like, oh, look out for this thing, look out for that thing. But there was Camilla telling me that it's not enough to tell them what's wrong with the world. You have to give, feed their moral imaginations with things that are good, true, and beautiful. That also is a form of resistance. Reading uh, Live Not By Lies, especially the second half, uh, one of the things that crossed my mind, and I wonder if you've ever written about it or, or, or if you'd consider writing about it, is, is a homegrown American example of, of keeping the, the light of Christianity alive and building a subculture under horrific and oppressive circumstances is how um, black Christianity flourished among the slaves, which is, is all the more exceptional considering the fact that uh, they, they could be justified in thinking that this was the, the, the oppressor's religion, seeing as how the original slave owners would use the scripture to justify the horrible things they were doing. But still you have like Phyllis Wheatley, who is an absolutely magnificent poet. You have uh, uh, this entire genre of music um, that, that comes out of this period. I think Whitaker Chambers put it the best. He said the Negro spiritual uh, was the oppressed slave's answer to the psalmist's question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Um and you have this entire subculture that develops, and that's sort of a homegrown example of what would Christianity look under uh, under uh, oppression. Have you ever really taken a look at that or researched that that side of things? You know, I have in part. Uh, a few years ago, I collaborated with a friend of mine, Wendell Pierce. He's an uh, African-American actor from New Orleans. He, was, he played the character Plunk in The Wire. Hmm. He's been on a, a number of things. Really interesting guy. He's from New Orleans, and uh, he asked me to help him with a memoir he wrote about his family coming out of slavery and, and establishing themselves in New Orleans and leading up to how they gave him the background to succeed as an actor. And as part of my research to help him, I had to learn exactly the sort of thing you're talking about, how the black slaves had nothing but their suffering, but they had their faith. And they their faith and the hope that Christ gave them allowed them to take their pain and turn turn it into something beautiful with Negro spirituals and ultimately with jazz coming out of New Orleans. Um, I think it's a tremendous story, and it's one that needs to be told in the way, in the framework that, that you're mentioning, you know, as this is what Christians can do under oppression. Uh, I have to tell you, though, Jonathan, I, I wanted to do a chapter in the Benedict Option about the black church and mm-hmm. what it did, but uh, I already, the racial politics around right. a white person telling these stories were so awful. I, right. I thought, if I, if I write this, I'm going to be accused of cultural appropriation for appropriating the stories of the black church to serve some right-wing narrative. Mm. If I don't write it, I'm going to be accused of ignoring the black church experience because I'm a right-wing white racist. Right. In fact, that's exactly what happened. But uh, I, I was accused of you know, completely dismissing the black church, but uh, it's a no-win situation. And it's really ridiculous because the story of the black church, I mean, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have so much to learn from them. All of us do. But now we're forced to uh, walk on eggshells around it so we don't get accused of being a racist just for uh, wanting to know more about their story and to think about how, how it can affect and should affect our lives as Christians. Yeah, final final question is you've been you've been studying these these things for decades now. Uh, was there anything in your interviews with with these Christian dissidents that that caught you off guard that shocked you? Um, was there any? In other words, was there anything brand new that you thought, "Wow, I'm going to use this at home with my kids, with my family"? Was there anything that really like that was like so fresh that it caught you off guard? I don't think there was anything that was fresh conceptually, but. There was something in the way these stories were told to me that made it all real. And I'll tell you something that has been of particular use to me during COVID. As I'm talking to you now, I'm here at home in Louisiana. I've got in my hand uh, a book that was handed to me in Bratislava. It's an English translation of a memoir by a man, Dr. Sylvester Kirchmeri. He was part of the underground church, a pillar of the underground church in Slovakia, he was sent to prison, a communist prison, in the early 1950s for being part of the underground church. Before he died in the 2000s, he wrote a book called This Saved Us, How to Survive Brainwashing. It's just his prison memoir. Mm. The thing that got to me, and I keep going back to this almost every day, he said that when he was thrown in prison, he had to make a firm decision 
not to feel sorry for himself because he knew that if he pitied himself, that he would collapse right. and he would not be able to carry his cross. He said, rather, he told himself that these sufferings that are being sent to me, I'm, I'm here to be God's probe. That's the word he used, God's probe, meaning he was there to be God's ambassador, to find out what he could learn about the situation they were all in. He suffered his tor- tortures, but, but refused to hate his torturers back. He ministered to others. He prayed with people and so on and so forth. But that key insight that I cannot allow myself self-pity, that is so powerful. I, there have been times during this COVID tide where, look, I have, I have a pretty easy life. You know, I'm going right. to to the house, but, you know, I'm middle class. We're fine. I'm, I, I work from my computer. But it's easy to feel sorry for yourself because you can't go out and see your friends. You can't have people over, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But there's a man who is in prison. Yeah. Who was being beaten for his faith. And yet he said self-pity is the absolute worst thing you can do. Well, we live in a culture now, Jonathan, where victimhood is the coin of the realm, right? Right. And the more you can pity yourself and, and induce others to pity you, the more power you have. I think that for us Christians, you know, that the, part of the humility that we're going to need to get through this is going to be not feeling sorry for ourselves. That's not to say that we shouldn't complain or, or, or point out when we are being abused or mistreated. That's all true, but we cannot surrender ourselves to this victimhood culture that is being allowed to run rampant over the rest of us, because we cannot be faithful to Christ if that's what we do. We will surrender ourselves to the same sort of vengeance mentality and call it justice if, if we surrender to it. So, uh, And one more thing I'll say real quick, I know mm-hmm. we're running out of time. The last story I tell in Live Not By Lies is from a man named Timo Krishka, a young guy who's a millennial who was re- born just before communism fell, never knew communism in his life, He's become really successful as a photographer in Bratislava. But he was unhappy with his life and couldn't really figure out why. He decided at one point a few years ago to start doing a project where he would go out throughout the country to the rural areas and interview elderly people who had been Christians thrown in prison for their faith under communism. And he went to talk to them. A lot of them are still quite poor. You know, they had their lives ruined, uh, in a way, by prison. But he said these were the happiest, most joyful people. And what it turned out, as he would interview them, it turned out that their time in prison, because they refused to pity themselves, and because they opened themselves up to the Holy Spirit to allow themselves to be purified and transformed, they came closer to the Lord than they had ever been, and it affected the rest of their lives. Uh, and Timo said that, Timo Krishka told me, said, it really changed me too, because I realized that, you know, I had been living by the values of the world, where I wanted more and more fame, I wanted more and more riches, and I could never be satisfied with that. What I really needed was God. And it took these elderly people who had had everything taken from them to show him the power of surrender to the Lord in that way. I think that's something that we mm-hmm. can, whether we live to see any sort of social credit system or American gulag or anything like that, this is the kind of wisdom, hard-won spiritual wisdom, that will save us. Well, Rod, thank you for this book, and thank you for spending so much time with us. We really do appreciate it. It was a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Rod Dreyer of the American Conservative on his new book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Head over to LifeSightNews.com and click on the podcast tab if you want to check out previous shows, other episodes. Last week we talked to Marjorie Denenfelser about the Trump administration, what's uh, at stake for the pro-life movement in November. Uh, The week before that, we had Dr. Alveda King, the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and a staunch pro-life activist. If you want to check out those conversations, please do head on over, subscribe. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.